My name is Kara Kukowiak from Softcast. I'm being joined by Elizabeth Minoyne and Robert Ferry, the founding co-directors of the Land Art Generator. And we are so thrilled to have them here again with us for a second time. Elizabeth and Robert, thanks for joining us here. Thank you, Kara. Thanks for having us, Kara. So great. Last we discussed, we talked about the really interesting and impactful work that Land Art Generator does. And I would love to, for our listeners, have a conversation about how to really build the change and how you guys go about that in your process. So let's just talk about as a starter, how was the process for when you're thinking about starting to build land art generator installations, how does that process start? That process starts with a lot of community engagement. Number one of importance is that Everyone who will be impacted by a land art generator installation is a part of the conversation of what that installation actually is, how it manifests, who benefits from it, what are the other co-benefits that come out of a land art generator. What we're really trying to do is apply the best practices of creative placemaking and participatory design for communities, which is a well-established discipline, to the energy landscape transformation because we need to recognize that these solar installations, wind installations, or other kinds of renewable energy power plants are really adaptable, can be distributed, they can be right in the places that we live and work, and they're gonna transform our visual landscape like nothing since the advent of the automobile brought superhighways across the, the, the world. We need to think proactively about what that actual implementation looks like. And so it's time for the energy developer community to really merge with the community design community to to think about how this happens properly and equitably. And when we run design competitions, that starts with the conversations that we have with the area around the chosen site to develop the brief collaboratively with the people who it will be impacting. And then those same individuals and a broader set of community are involved in the selection of the outcomes of the competition and continue on through the next stages towards implementation, which is for every work of art in public space or installation in public space. It's, it's so critical that engagement continue. So that that's a process. And are there challenges that you face when these are actually being constructed or implemented, whether that be either from the side of stakeholders or just even the construction itself? I think looking at our solar mural artwork program is a good window into that conversation. And some of the challenges have been around site selection. You know, there has to be the proper solar access. We don't want to cut trees down. There might be historic review involved. So it's really coming down to the right site for the for the installation and the functionality of that installation. Yeah, it really comes down to the fact that this cannot be a cookie cutter approach where vacant lots are identified for community solar and they are fenced with barbed wire and panels are put on the ground and you know security cameras keep people out and it becomes this other, this thing that is a necessary evil in our community. And it really doesn't have to be that way because solar is so versatile, it can provide so many co-benefits and create beautiful places for people. And so if we can do that correctly, 
then we can serve the overall energy transition in a much better and more productive way and lead to more deployment as people have this really great association with what solar can be. And I also would encourage if any of your listeners want really detailed outcomes from, you know, the, our process for installing projects, we're really happy to deep dive every scenario, every project and how we've resolved issues. So happy to go in depth in those details. You know, I think I would love to expand upon something you touched on, which is climate and like the, so is, how does that kind of get planned into the process or is that from, you know, I would just love to hear how climate plays a role in designing these. Well, you know, for the international competitions we hold, they're site specific. And at the time that we are putting together the design brief that the teams are responding to, we're also putting together a huge treasure trove of materials that include climate conditions, sustainability goals, cultural issues around the area. You know, we want folks who are designing who probably don't live in the city of the project itself to have as much information that they possibly can without visiting. Because we can't make assumptions about people's ability to travel to the sites. For any design competition, we have 70 or 80 countries represented in the process of design. So we don't expect that folks will visit. So we do everything we can. And you know, we've hit on a variety of site typologies at this point. And those include urban gateways, landfills, brownfield sites, coastal sites, city portals. Our most recent is interesting because it's rural high desert. So each of these has a variety of conditions that's unique and we do everything we can to make sure teams have that information. And so when entrants are designing, you know, specific for this site, I've, I've seen from your previous pieces that they're really attaching on to an aspect of that city that that is unique to that city and that really def- defines with it. So what is it that they're, what are the kind of aspects that, that, the, that the installations are building upon? Is it cultural of, you know, how are they making that connection with the home city? Yeah, that's unique for every design team who participates, how they interpret the brief. So as Elizabeth was saying, the brief is unique to the site and it is a product of conversations with local stakeholders and community, including all the meteorological data and detailed information about the site and the strategic plans of the city and where the what are the cultural influences. And so with all of that information, the teams interpret that in the way that they decide to and bring their own themes and ideas. Because at the end of the day, these are energy power plants, but they're also standing as cultural markers set in a place in time, the early 21st century during the energy transition. So there's a whole slew of potential rich conceptual framework to to, to work within. And so what the narrative, what the story that the teams are telling through their creative expression is unique to every team. Some teams are interested in engaging the public about their perceptions of climate change. Some are interested in communicating real-time data 
through information graphics, whether that's illumination or text or some other means that show how the renewable energy is functioning, how much energy it's creating in a moment in time, over a period of time. And so there are a lot of different ways that teams approach the design brief based on what kind of story they want to tell. And do you notice that as the community, the stakeholders at the site are involved in the conversation, do you notice them building a sense of ownership of the piece or kind of building that attachment to it? Yes, it's so critical that we engage local stakeholders from the very start of the process, from everything. I mean, when we start a design competition, before we jump into the design brief, we are on the ground having conversations with different folks. Those could be educators, they could be local community groups, they could be, you know, the design community themselves, but we do everything we can to make sure that folks feel a sense of ownership with the process from day one that we're invited in. These are all lessons that we can take from the the work from the 1960s, Jane Jacobs, William White, understanding how cities are healthy and thriving and how places are protected in a way that makes them safe and and, and as a consequence, economically vibrant. It's a matter of the people who live in a neighborhood feeling that sense of, of pride and ownership in their landscapes um, and in the in their own in their own properties and the, the, com- the community property the commons and like we were like I was just saying before about the the various approaches to energy landscapes and cities we've learned lessons from public housing that was designed poorly because it didn't engage people with what their conception of a residence in the city is. And we saw the consequences of that and places like Prudhigo had to be destroyed and rethought. And the whole revolution of what makes cities tick, we've figured a lot of that stuff out and we need to apply that as we transform energies into living, transform cities into living cities that produce their own energy in, in, in an integrated way. So in the cities where design competitions have been held, what have there been have there been positive effects to that city that you've seen as a result of having the competitions there? Do you notice for your stakeholders, are they starting to think differently about renewable energy? Something we do for all competitions is create unique educational materials that sometimes are dual language. That's what makes sense for that particular project. And these are educational materials that include the lessons of the land art generator, you know, true STEAM programming, and often integrate the design submissions themselves so that folks are having a really deep understanding of these design solutions for their city, their home place. And this becomes legacy programming. We create these unique educational materials We hold workshops for people of all ages utilizing those materials. And we give them out for free in the city and around the world. And they are free PDF downloads on our website. So this becomes legacy programming that really instills a deep understanding of the outcomes from these competitions. And that's something that we find universally with the competitions that people who walk by an empty parking lot every day and don't think twice about it, all of a sudden they see a beautiful rendering of what that place could become. And then after that, they learn that, 
oh, in fact, it's actually providing hundreds of megawatt hours of electricity to the grid in a sustainable way. It just in many cases has a transforming impact on their perception of the energy transition, climate solutions, you know, what's possible in their city. And by having those visualizations and seeing those potential futures, it really does get people imagining and in many cases on board with, you know, leading the the way to, to that future. Do Landar generator installations, you know, a lot of the times with these renewable energy structures, such as wind turbines, they need a lot of land, a lot of space in order to function. So for the installations, is it similar or could they even be on the roof of a building, for example? That's definitely possible. I think that the engineers you talk to would, you know, probably steer you away from putting wind energy on buildings because of the, the vibration and the and the complexities around that, although it has been done to mixed results. Vertical axis wind turbines can be placed closer together, so they might be a better technology for urban integration rather than horizontal axis wind turbines, the large three-blade ones that we're used to seeing on mountain ridge tops. But yeah, wind integration is possible in, in artwork and in cities, absolutely. There's some amazing projects that have come into the land art generator throughout the years that, that show how that's possible. I think the rotor proposal to Loggy 2018 mm-hmm. Melbourne is a really beautiful example. It's vertical axis wind turbines that the blades are, it's the pure engineering. They haven't changed the, the, the geometry of the turbine. So it's pretty standard, but the blades are done with a reflective chrome. So they are this shimmering mirror that is always transforming the landscape around. So that's the kind of approach that some people have taken. Some interesting ideas about wind turbines without blades using piezoelectric technology. That's a little bit cutting edge and that might be the future, but that's the kind of stuff that needs to be researched and developed. One of our favorites over the years is Windstock from Loggy 2010 for a site in Abu Dhabi near Mazdar City. Solar is the more versatile technology though, for sure. So for that, I'm probably going to mispronounce it, but the that new up-and-coming advanced technology you just mentioned, what was it called? Piezoelectricity. Do you mind just giving a bit more detail what that is? It, it has to do with the, the physical property of certain materials that are called piezoelectric materials, some ceramics. A lot of materials have piezoelectric properties, but some have incredibly strong properties, which basically the consequence is that when they're when there's pressure applied to the material, it gives off an electric charge. And conversely, if you take an electric um, charge to the material, you can actually bend it. It responds to electricity and its physical um, manifestation. So by stacking these kinds of piezoelectric actuators, as they're called, you could potentially provide a significant amount of electricity production by the wind bending these materials. That's the theory. And the great thing about, you know, this discussion we're having is that it really, I think for the listeners, will really open people's minds to what renewable energy is or can be, because I think there's a kind of an inside the box mentality. Oh, it has to look like a turbine or it has to look like a PV on a roof. But, you know, it, I think it just, what you guys are doing is opening up so many opportunities for critical thought about this, which will really benefit our 
you know, energy industry in the long run, I think. And I wanted to ask you, how do you evaluate the success of the installations when you're, you know, when you're in the final stages of the competition and you're thinking about what key aspects you're really touching on for success, how would you define those aspects? At the end of the day, our goal is to advance the rapid deployment of energy systems that can transition us to a net zero economy. And so I guess the way that we measure success is the number of people that we've influenced to provide a positive vision of what that future is. And I think that one of our main goals when we began was to to be a countervailing force against the not in my backyard kind of initial reaction to renewable energy landscapes that are proposed in certain places because they're deemed to be not pretty or dispel some of the myths around renewable energy installations that they reduce property values or things like this, which are understandable concerns if that's the the opinion that you have of them. And so it's important that we show how wonderful this future can be. And I guess getting back to measurements, we look at every competition in terms of how many people have we engaged with the exhibition, you know, we make a publication. So we look at its, its success. We look at the um, number of participants who have brought forward their innovative solutions. This work would be nothing without the participation of these incredible people around the world with these amazing ideas. And something we really love and I think is measure of success is the amount of university students who are engaging with our design brief. What we came to understand early on is that professors were utilizing our design guidelines for senior studio coursework. And we had not anticipated that. And that was one of, I think, is one of the greatest outcomes is that young people at that stage of developing who they're going to be in a career space are thinking through energy landscapes as places that are equitable and that can engage and help manifest a just energy transition and that bring cultural and aesthetics to our cityscapes. So that's been a really great treat knowing that university students are engaging with our process. Have you noticed that there's a certain age group or even certain countries that participate in your design competitions more than others? Or do you notice that there are countries that are more receptive to uh, these installations? You know, we get participation from around the world for every single competition. There might be So, for example, Loggy 2018 Melbourne in Australia, I would say there was greater participation from Australian designers because it was their backyard or front yard, but still global participation. And I think that's true for every design competition is that we'll see more regional or national talent for the competition, the, the place where it's being held. But it's always international and it's a wide range of age groups and also truly interdisciplinary. So landscape architects, engineers, artists, you know, really a range of participation in disciplines. It sounds like it, it the land art gender installations really touch on, really touch many people from many different backgrounds, which I think is, I mean, I think that's one of the 
wonderful things about the the installations that you guys do. And I wanted to ask, we've talked about so many different things you guys are solving for. We've talked about cultural, societal, environmental. If you had to, it might be difficult, but if you had to pick the most pressing kind of thing you're solving for of those areas, what would you say? I would say that right now, creating an equitable and just energy transition is the most important. How do we make sure that all voices are at the table and are included in these very important decisions that are about to be made and being made? We don't want people to be left out. And I, I think that's something in our small little part of the pie we've been able to help manifest is bringing voices to the table. Yeah, and we have we have a decade really to get the, the strong foundation set. And in many respects, within the next 10 to 15 years, we have to get halfway there to zero. That's a huge undertaking that cannot be underestimated. And so the most important thing is that we gently leave behind the old conversations of, but is it really a problem or who's going to lose jobs because of this, or how is this going to impact my neighborhood? And by demonstrating that the outcomes can be incredibly positive, both visually, culturally, economically, and address those questions in a way that provides positive futures, we can leave those behind and, and, and boldly go where we need to, where the science and uh, policymakers tell us we have to. So the, in, we're doing what we can as artists and designers to push that as far as we can enough with our work. And to leave our interview today on a positive uh, note for listeners, we've really entered into a very different world with the pandemic. And it's when there's always a lot of upheaval, there can always be also opportunities for a lot of positive change. So do you think in the world we're entering into, do you think that there will be greater opportunities for having positive changes to our energy industry? Yes. You know, with the caveat that the energy of the inertial is strong, but this moment of reimagining the possible that this time has given us as some sort of silver lining to the tragedy of what so many loss of life, you know, changing the way that we live has given us an, an opportunity to, to see how much we, how much is possible in so little time. You know, when we face a disaster, when we face an emergency and we rise to meet that challenge, we can better understand what it's like to rise to meet the challenge of other emergencies. This one is very clear and present the climate emergency is definitely present, but not as clear. And I think that the more we can take this opportunity to communicate the clarity of that emergency and with the world having just gone through a year now of complete upside down of living, we have room to imagine, I guess is what I'd say. There's so many young people engaged with the conversation. That's That gives me the most hope right now when I see young people really activating change and on the front lines of the conversation, I think, okay, maybe we can really do this. 
you know, it's great. It's just so heartwarming to watch the youngers. In all aspects of life. And the land art generator is something very narrowly crossing over into economies, but but young people having a really bold, brave idea of how we can transform our economic system to be more just and equitable. It really does tie into the energy transition in many ways. That also gives us hope. Elizabeth and Robert, it's always such a pleasure for our listeners to listen to the incredible work that you do and the perspective that you have and the really how you inspire people to make positive changes in their world and therefore for the greater world at large. So I want to thank you for your time and for sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks, thank Kara. You. We appreciate your time and we appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. And for those listening, if you want to check out Elizabeth and Robert's first podcast interview with me, please be sure to tune into saltcast.com and also for a great additional sustainability content. Thank you so much, you guys.